Welcome to Biopod, the official podcast of the School of Biological Sciences at the University of Edinburgh. My name is Joanne. And I'm Tyg. And in today's episode, Chris will be sitting down with Dr. Alex Makarov, who recently completed his PhD in Eric Schimmer's lab in the Wellcome Centre for Cell Biology in Edinburgh. Alex is going to tell us about his recently published work with the intermediate filament protein lamin A. Together with microfilaments and microtubules, intermediate filaments give cells their characteristic structure and shape. Intermediate filaments are the most flexible of the three, giving the cell its key viscosity and elasticity. Lamin A's function is so important that mutations leading to alterations of this protein's structure are linked to 13 distinct human syndromes, ranging from cardiomyopathy to progeria. Therefore, understanding the structure of lamin A could help scientists understand the mechanisms causing these diseases. Lamin A is made primarily of coiled-coil domains and flexible linkers, which give it its characteristic flexibility. This flexibility makes lamin A hard to characterize by conventional methods such as cryo-electron microscopy or x-ray crystallography. For this reason, Dr. Makarov has used alternative methods, namely cross-linking mass spectrometry and rotary metal shadowing electron microscopy to look at the structure of lamin A. To finish off the episode, we're going to talk about veganuary and the future of food. And now let's hand over to Chris for the interview. Hello and welcome, dear listeners. Today we are sitting with Dr. Alex Makarov to talk about his work investigating a nuclear skeleton of the cell. Welcome, Alex. Hello. So what are we looking at here when we talk about the nuclear skeleton? I assume we're not looking at tiny bones of cells. Um, we actually are, and, you know, there is no such thing as too small to have a backbone. So um, mammalian cell is basically a teeny very soft lipid band. But in our body, it exists under constant mechanical stress. It experiences the weight of the surrounding cells in a dense tissue, or think of it as a contracting muscle cell that's being pounded, or it's a teeny-weeny blood cell or a fibroblast cell that's squeezed through through teeny-weeny blood vessel or through tissue. And um, just like our bodies that rely on a skeleton to keep its shape, um, the cells inside our bodies rely on the skeleton of their own to withstand the stress. It's called cytoskeleton, and it's make of, made of polymeric protein fibers. Okay, so is this how the cell keeps its structural integrity? It's how it keeps itself together, resisting, like, I imagine there's sorts of forces which are, uh, go on cells, like compression or... Oh, yes. So they are three types of filaments that we have. The two famous ones, the actin fibers that are responsible for cell membrane support and for the metal and contractile motion. Um, and then there are much thicker hollow microtubules that define general cell shape and polarization, like which organelles are at which end of the cell, basically. And this these can cope with some compression load, but not much of it. And finally, there are the intermediate filaments. Um, immediately imaginatively called that because they're thicker than actin but thinner than microtubules. So this is the most diverse group of proteins. There are over several different types of it comprising it. And um, intermediate filaments are the most tensile and the most flexible of the three fermenter systems. They are very bendy and they also can be extended to two to three times the length under force. And that kind of force would normally break actin and microtubules. 
Um, and so intermediate filaments fill the cytoplasm and can they sell its viscosity and elasticity. And I think in this way, they contribute the most to the cell mechanical integrity. Um, intermediate filaments as a group are also unique in that for one, they are the only of the three big uh, filamentous systems that are forming the nucleus skeletons. Lamins, the subject of our study, are intermediate filaments and they are crucial for maintaining nuclear mechanical integrity by helping it to cope with stress. And for the other thing, unlike the microfilament and microtubule building blocks acting on tubulin proteins, these proteins are globular, the intermediate filaments are distended and very flexible. And it is thought that, that their long distended shape is what gives them the unique mechanical properties, but it also renders them very hard to study by standard techniques used to interrogate protein structure. Okay, so these lamin uh, proteins, these uh... Uh, micro, so these fibular proteins, not globular, which are part of the structure of the cell, how can you even investigate them if you can't use your standard techniques, as you say? So to tackle the distended structure of laminate intermediate film protein, we principally employ the chemical cross-linking mass spectrometry. And this method uses chemical agent to commonly fused side chains of certain types of amino acid residues within the protein backbone that are close together. And then mass spec identifies these residue pairs uh, providing us essentially with a map of interacting residues on a certain type within the protein structure. Um, we also then gathered additional information about the shape and linearization state of laminae in our experiments by means of rotorometal-shadowing EM, which is a very cool and almost out of use by now technique, but it's uniquely suitable for visualizing intermediate filament proteins. And this allows us to control that the chemical cross-linking did not alter the structure of something as flexible as laminates. Um, and then we cross-reference this information, uh, the map of the interact residue and the shape of a protein, and fed it to the, um, to the computer. We used in silico molecular modeling uh, of laminate molecular structure and its various dynamic informations. Okay, uh, so you've mentioned mass spec, and you've mentioned what sounds like a very specific application of mass spec. That, it sounds very interesting, but also quite expensive. So how do you attract the funding for this? How do you make people care about your work? So the role of lamins in human biology as a whole cannot be highlighted more than by the fact that there are close to 300 mutations in just laminae on its own, and there are several types of lamin, and they're linked to 13, at least 13 distinct human diseases. And all of these are incurable at the moment. And further, our actual understanding of how to each particular mutation may lead to disease, extremely limited. We know that not all mutations affect nuclear skeleton elasticity, uh, but some cause problems in other ways, like affecting genome organization and gene expression. Uh, figuring this out, though, is a huge work because of just sheer number of mutations. And finally, I would say that uh, unique intermediate filament mechanical properties make them a perfect template for design of tensile biopolymers and therefore understanding of basic principles behind intermediate filament assembly and elasticity and all that are essential for this. Would you say you focus more on the medical uh, possibilities of your work than compared to save a material? I think both are important. I think we as a society we have a huge drive to um, discover new materials of both non-organic and of biological origin and um, actually, the use of those materials in medicine cannot be underestimated. So actually, these two merge together in that. Okay, so you've recently had a paper published in Nature as a Farmer's Work, which studied these lamin proteins. It's if they're so important, why hasn't their structure or assembly been discussed before or been dissected? Um, so 
not for the lack of trying. The structure and assembly of laments and other intermediate filaments has been studied by some of our best biochemists and structural microbiologists for the last 30 to 50 years. And while a great wealth of knowledge has been accumulated, the finer points of intermediate filament structure and assembly mechanics still elude us for laments or for any other intermediate filaments, proteins, to be honest. Um, so for laments and for other members of the intermediate filament protein family, structure is inherently poorly tractable by conventional methods used to interrogate protein structure. This is, we're talking about X-ray crystallography or cryo-electron microscopy. Um, and this is because these techniques require all proteins, protein molecules in your sample or all protein molecule complexes in your sample to be in a very similar, and we're talking about a couple atom sizes, similar conformations. So from experiments with polarized light, we know that um, lamins support a long central alpha helical domain and they form effectively a rod. Yeah. And so we call this superhelix a coil coil, but it really looks like rod when visualized by low resolution electron microscopy. It's about 50 nanometers long and was observed to be supremely flexible. It bends, it kinks, it folds in half, anything. Um, and this is not surprising if you think of alpha helix as a, indeed um, a spring and the coil coil is a duplex of two springs. And what complicates matters on top of that is that um, the rod domain is not a single long continuous coil coil, but it's separated into several shorter ones by unstructured regions that we call linkers. Think of Japanese nunchake, if you like. It's bendy sticks connected by a chain that can do whatever. Uh, but on top of that, um, the problem with lamins or any other intermediate filaments is that the rod domain, this bendy alpha helical rubber bendy formation, is flying, flanked by head and tail domains. So it makes lamin diamonds look like a rod with a pair of globules at the end, with a pair of balls, but it also makes it impossible to crystallize the full length molecule. So electron microscopy is what has given us a good idea of general filament assembly principle for lamins though. Lamin dimers first interact in a head-to-tail order where at the end of one dimer rod overlaps by a couple of nanometers with the beginning of the other dimer rod and they form a long thin thread decorated by a couple of globules at regular spacing. Um, and so you can imagine this would be very, very flexible. And then, then these um, threads, they assemble uh, to form um, filaments. And from recent paper in Nature we, um, that visualized the glyskeleton in uh, mouse fibroblast cells, we know that these filaments are fairly irregular looking. From your work from this paper, have you revealed a mechanism behind the nucleoskeletal elasticity? In search for a different mechanism to generate elasticity, we theorized that maybe the rod could actually exist in a pre-compressed state. Um, we thought so already after looking at the early data, and we were further inspired by the recently obtained electron microscopy imagery of the intact nucleoskeletal fibers um, that revealed as filaments that seemed to have been shorter than we expected and that suggested that the rod domains of the dimers within these fibers may actually be 40 nanometers, not 50 nanometers in length. Our own observations of laminate dimer in vitro, not in the assembled filaments, indicate that the length of the rod domain of laminate is not actually constant as measured before at 51, 52 nanometers, but actually varies between 40 to almost 56 nanometers. It's about 30% range of the original length. Um, and the structural mechanisms for such short compression appear to lie in the flexible behavior of the link regions connecting the coil coil segments. 
turned out that these can drive partial staggering of adjacent coil coil segment termini for each pair of the coil coil segments in the rod that are um, sequentially connected. And this seems to be driven by electrostatic interaction between the linker regions and the rod termini, and then between the coil coil segment termini themselves uh, for each pair of staggered termini. And uh, we saw that this interaction can be stable with an overlap anywhere between one to five nanometers yeah. smoothly. The distribution was smooth. And uh, we think this provides a good basis for an elastic response where within the filament dimer rod domains would exist in a pre-compressed state and then would stretch and but remain stable under force. And then when the force is removed, they would shorten back um, by gradual re-establishing of the electrostatic interactions between linkers and eventually the rod um, termini. Okay, so the image I have in my head right now is not just nunchucks, but magnetic nunchucks. Basically, okay. exactly. So um, what was further interesting is that what I've just described is happening just within the dimer in the rod, and we now have a dimer that is connected by magnetic linkers, the coil-coil fragments connected by magnetic linkers that drag them back over each other when there is no force applied. But uh, our data indicates that similar mechanisms exist between the dimers in the filament as well. So we knew for a while that the head domains of lamins are important for the head-to-tail assembly, for the assembly into the linear threads. Uh, but now we captured both head and more surprisingly the tail domain interacting at the interface between the two dimers in the chain directly. Um, and notably both the head and the involved fragment of the tail are positively charged and we postulate that they serve as over bridges between the overlapping rod termini and the head-to-tail interface, which are by the way negatively charged so would actually not normally interact too well. Um, more importantly for us though, uh, our data indicated multiple possible confirmations for both the head and the tail um, and indicated that they would interact in multiple different places along the overlapping rod termini. And um, this effect, um, effectively mirrors the behavior of the linkers supporting the various degrees of overlap between the coil-coil segments, if you think of it. And to get this leads to then the novel way of looking at the lamin. And we think um, other intermediate filament proteins as well, because they're fairly conserved, where uh, the relatively short coil coil fragments are connected either by linker regions within the dimers or by the unstructured and flexible head and tail regions, which happens between the dimers. And then these coil coil fragments can slide along each other to reversibly adapt to the applied mechanical stimulus. Um, and we think that under force, this would happen before the unwinding of the coil coil segments, the alpha helix to beta sheet transition, um, and it would, but it would create a window for short um, elastic response before the filaments will start actually deform. You've mentioned a very complex system here, uh, which I'm not going to try and summarize right now. What approach did you take to uh, study the structure of laminate? Uh, like, because you mentioned mass spec, you've mentioned creating a model, you've mentioned using low res. Uh, electron microscopy. Just talk me through your approach. So um, one of the core decisions for us was to study the full length laminate structure, not its individual fragment like it was done before, because this way we could capture the most information about how all of the lamin domains work together to achieve its structure and assembly. Um, and the second principal decision uh, was to use the chemical cross-linking coupled with mass spectrometry. Um, that allows to partially circumvent the flexibility issue that uh, most researchers have been bumping into before. So in the first step of this is chemical agent is used um, 
it's introduced to the protein and it's used to conveniently fuse side chains of certain types of uh, residues when they're proximal. And in population of flexible molecules, this captures all of these molecules and all of their varied conformations. Um, and the use of mass spectrometry then to identify which residues were close links to which, um, and that's what proximal in the structure is crucial because here, instead of requiring every single molecule to be in the very same conformation, um, and thus yielding ident identical pairs of cross-linked residues across the entire population, mass spec only needs a certain residue pair to be cross-linked often enough to be detectable. So every cross-linkable residue would uh, for, for every cross-linkable residue, we could determine the most frequent other cross-linkable residues it is proximal to in the population of otherwise very flexible molecules. Um, one additional issue we had to turn to was the use of stable isotope amino acid labeling, or SILAC, uh, during preparation of our laminate protein samples. So laminate forms homodimers. Diamonds of consisting of two identical molecules. And mass spectrometry relies on identification of peptides and residues by mass. And therefore, uh, in a pair of cross-linked peptides that contain two cross-linked residues, you cannot actually say whether both peptides came from the same molecule or from two different molecules. And this becomes an even bigger problem when the dimer is symmetrical with domains lined to each other and the same residues from two molecules are being closed by anyway. Um, so most of our experiments were conducted in vitro with bacterially expressed laminate. And so to circumvent the homo-oligomer problem, the homodimer problem in this instance, we expressed laminate separately in bacteria feeding on either light, normal amino acids, or in bacteria feeding on isotopically labeled heavy amino acids. Using this material, when we then reconstituted together light and heavy monomers, we were able to form dimers of two molecules of identical sequence, but each molecule would be of different mass. And this way, mass spec could tell if the cross-linked residues came from the same one molecule, or if it came from one light molecule, and the other would come from the heavy molecule. And this way, we could tell this is cross-linked between the two molecules. Um, we further applied this while we were studying initial assembly stages of laminate dimers into filaments by mixing the fully light dimers with fully heavy dimers, and therefore we were able to tell whether a cross-linked pair of residues were within the same dimer or between the two dimers. Um, and so this information we then combined and recapitulated to a degree with the data from Rotfermetal Shadowing EM, that very, very cool technique. Um, that I was talking about that uses platinum to create a metal cast of your protein. And um, this informed us about the chromational state of the cross-linked laminate molecules and also allowed us to do a further computational modeling where we would correlate, for example, the lengths of the rod with the crossings that we see and model um, the conformations that that particular rod would have with the um, interactions data that we get from cross-linking. And from that, we could predict then the assembly mechanical behavior. Um, I would say that finally, and most excitingly for us, we uh, also managed to pull some informations from in vivo. We used chemical cross-linking um, on the extracted nuclear envelopes on the nucleoskeletal shell, uh, where Lamin filaments are assembled, and we managed to recapitulate some of our data that we saw in vitro. Um, and the fact that we managed to observe the same thing 
in our artificial in vitro system and in the assembled nuclear skeleton makes our data particularly exciting. You've just you've covered quite a lot of fields here. Uh, just quickly, you're biochemist, you would say, but you've got quite an intersectional project. So how many fields do you think your project covers just trying to study laminae? Uh, yes, indeed. We were um, lucky enough to have uh, Europe Silber and his lab located just the floor below us, and they did most of the uh, mass spectrometry work for us. And then uh, we did some additional studies down in Newcastle, uh, where we did analytical centrifugation to confirm some of our uh, electron microscopy data. We did EM in the electron microscopy unit that belongs to COIL, University of Edinburgh School of Biological Sciences. And at the later stage of our projects, we also um, did some modeling that I have some expertise in, but I had to turn to um, Douglas Houston, whose um, whose research is dedicated to mo- to modeling of proteins. So it's a huge team that we collected over a time period of about five years to conduct this. Oh, that's a long time. Where do you see your work headed now? I assume, uh, are you still working on this project? Uh, have you passed it on? Um, I'm not working on this project. I'm working on something related, but, well, where is it heading? Towards saving humanity, I guess? Uh, within the scientific community, I hope that this will work will inspire fresh perspective in both how to study them and in terms of how they work. And we hope that uh, we ourselves or others can build on it, improve it, and eventually then use it to look at the changes that numerous mutations in various intermediate film and protein family members um, the direct on the structures in vivo within the cell and how that could lead to disease. So on the other hand, our findings, I think, allow the whole new way of thinking about what contributes to mechanical properties, and not just of lamins, but in other intermediate film and protein members as well. A uh, majority of evidence to date suggests that the intermediate film and mechanics, their unique elasticity and stretchability comes from the very flexible but nonetheless ordered nature of coil claws, and now we have evidence um, that some of it may be due to the dynamic behavior and interactions of the even more flexible, unstructured regions, linkers, heads, and tails that connect the coil coil fragment. When could a listener expect to ever see, to see this work affect their lives? There is no telling. Um, on a practical level, on a translational level, these findings have proven up. Uh, accurate and developed upon, and one paper and one study is usually never enough for that. We hope that this will bring us closer to understanding of the mechanism behind multiple diseases linked to mutations, and may I remind you that um, all of the uh, diseases that related to mutations in lamins or other intermediate filament proteins, such as keratins, they are incurable, and we hope that our insight will bring us closer to the cure. Um, in addition to that, um, I think there's a huge drive towards discovery of new materials. And um, one of the relevant examples when it comes to biological materials is the use of spider silk in in medicine as a scaffold for tissue repair or as a way of drug delivery. And intermediate filaments are certainly on the scope of that interest. Um, When we went into all this, we didn't actually expect to see what we saw. But in fundamental science, every new discovery is a tool to make more discoveries. Every new answer to any questions brings more questions, but also better ways of answering them. And every new breakthrough ultimately helps us to make the life of humankind better. Oh, that was a lovely insight into your work and the paper itself. But now we're interested in you. So what are you up to these days? Um, so I'm 
So I finished my PhD in the University of Edinburgh and this work was my PhD work, thank you. Um, now I moved to the University of Dundee where I do similar work uh, using chemical cross-linking and mass spectrometry to look at, surprisingly, trypanosomes. Now I'm a parasitologist. Trypanosomes are organisms that cause sleeping sickness and hats and chagas diseases, um, but they're very divergent from humans and from other mammalian cells. and we're actually looking at the same thing. We're looking at their analogs of lamins, and we are hoping to understand how they work and thus to make some sort of conclusion as to whether they are the mechanisms that we uh, think that define mechanical properties of lamins, of nucleoskeleton, whether they were commonly shared in the last eukaryotic ancestor. Okay, so you're staying in Scotland. Uh, I understand you actually moved here as well from Russia to come to Scotland? That is so. Why did you stay here? I'm not saying you shouldn't stay here. This is a lovely place, but how come you chose to stay? I mean, it's the weather. Who would not want to have five summers a year, even if every single one of them lasts a day or two? I say it's more like five winters, but... No, it's non-stop autumn and five summers. Okay. There is no winter here, not by Russian standards. <laughs> I mean, in general, Scotland is a beautiful place to live. And despite being small, I mean, the whole population of Scotland fits into my home city several times over. Um, it has a very vibrant and very accepting atmosphere. And for scientists specifically, I would say that Scotland offers a lot of opportunities for both fundamental and translational research. And within the academia or within UK-wide research associations such as MRC, as well as in private biotech sector. So that's why you're saying in Scotland, but why stay in your field? What makes your work interesting to you? Um, I think... It's the combination of the old and the new. I was, in this particular research, I was working on something that has been studied for close to half a century now. Um, yes, in some ways, we still don't know a lot of things. I was working on mutations that are very much affecting the modern medicine, the diseases that we are currently facing. But at the same time, I was working on the coil coiled, and the person who wrote the first paper on coil coiled was Francis Crick. Oh, awesome. Uh, so finally, you've done what seems to be a very complex PhD. Any advice or surviving one for those of us still currently going through it or for those of us currently choosing to do one? Um, PhD can be a hugely stressful and challenging, but also hugely rewarding experience. Um, and it's char- challenging and stressful because it's, I think, first very big step towards committing yourself towards doing science. And it's an opportunity to learn, but it's also um, an opportunity to prove that uh, you can design, that you can think scientifically, that you can come up with theories and then come up with ways of testing them, either using the existing methodology or coming up with new methodology. And it is stressful to do that you don't know whether you're going to succeed but then when you do succeed it's you you feel like you've done something new that you've pushed the envelope of human knowledge um and it's a rewarding experience stressful experience so my advice would be a don't tunnel vision and don't forget that there is a life around you go and do other things but also uh to be able to continue the thought process that drives the phd Look for inspiration. Look for people who do research that you like, that you feel like affects human lives and think how what you do can affect human lives. Um, in now, 
or in 30 years, but eventually it will, stay positive. Well, thank you, Dr. Makarov, for a fascinating insight into the structure of the cell and the mechanical complexities that give them structure. Here at Biopod, we've been inspired by the surge in popularity of Veganuary, so we'd like to end this episode discussing the impact of our diet on the environment and the future of food production. The latest report by the UK's Committee on Climate Change, released this month, focuses entirely on how crucial land use policies are for the UK to meet its 2050 net zero emissions target. With 12% of the UK's total greenhouse gas emissions in 2017 coming from the UK's agriculture, forestry and peatland, the committee suggested sweeping changes to the way we use our land. Most prominent was its call for UK citizens to cut their beef, lamb and dairy consumption by at least 20% and replace it with alternative products. Fortunately, 2019 was a breakthrough year for vegan food. KFC tested vegan fried chicken from LA startup Beyond Meat. Burger King tried a vegan burger from another California startup, Impossible Foods. And the undoubted breakthrough of 2019 was Greg's vegan sausage roll, leading to a £7 million bonus spread across all Greg's employees. The plant-based meat substitutes used by KFC and Burger King try to source their protein from peas, beans and soy. Therefore, they still depend on large volumes of agricultural land to grow their product, although with noticeably less CO2 emissions than maintaining livestock. On the other hand, corn, the meat substitute used in the vegan sausage rolls, is created from a fungal protein. It is produced in fermentation vats akin to those used when brewing beer. This might be an improvement over the plant alternatives in terms of land use, but many would still argue that the conversion of soy or fungus into something that looks, smells and tastes anything like meat leaves much to be desired. Science might yet provide an alternative, ethical, eco-friendly method to placate our insatiable appetite for meat. Using the latest developments in cell culturing, some scientists are looking into growing the tastiest parts of our favourite animals in the lab. So how do you grow meat in a lab? The first step is to take some cells from an animal. These cells usually come from a biopsy of a live animal, but can also be sourced from frozen cell banks or a piece of fresh meat. The cell lines that are cultured in the lab can be derived from either primary cells or stem cells. So in the first case, some muscle or fat cells would be taken directly from the animal and then grown in culture. When basing meat on stem cells, any type of cells can be taken from the animal, for example skin cells, and then turned into induced pluripotent stem cells. These stem cells can then be differentiated into any cell type by altering the nutrients given to them. One big advantage of this approach is that these cells can be grown indefinitely, whereas primary cells can only be cultured for a finite period of time. Since these cells don't form structured tissues, the earliest efforts at lab-grown meat have been things like burgers, since these are much easier to produce than something like a steak or chicken breast. Overcoming this issue of structure is a big challenge and is at the cutting edge of the lab-grown meat industry. Technologies such as 3D printing and scaffolding, borrowed from the field of regenerative medicine, are being utilised to try and solve some of these problems. Israeli startup Aleph Farms is leading the charge in this area, having made the first lab-grown stakes, and even growing one of these stakes on the International Space Station in October 2019. Of course, beef isn't the only meat that the industry is focusing on. Bristol-based startup Higher Stakes has decided to focus on pork due to the similarity of human and porcine cells in terms of growth conditions. Finless Foods, based in San Francisco, want to make sustainable seafood without the catch. Another startup based in San Francisco, Just, produces lab-grown chicken. Despite all the innovation happening in this sector, 
Critics still question how affordable these products will be. The first lab-grown burger was made by researchers at the University of Maastricht in the Netherlands in 2013 and cost around $300,000 to make. One of the small lab-grown steaks produced by LF Farms costs around $50. If those sorts of price decreases continue, then we could very well see lab-grown meat on supermarket shelves in the next few years. The question remains whether consumers will be happy with this alternative source of meat. In fact, would you still be vegan if you ate lab-grown meat? That's the end of this week's episode. Joanne, Chris and I would like to thank you for listening and I hope you've learned something new. See you next time on Biopod.